The following message is brought to you by Berean Bible Church and may be used and distributed free of charge. For more free audio, video, and text resources, be sure to visit www.bereanbiblechurch.org. Thank you. Good morning. I want to welcome you this morning to Berean Bible Church. Many years ago, it's been, I guess, around 22 years now, I came to believe in the eschatology of preterism. Now, preterism, at least in my definition, is the teaching that the judgment of the nations, the resurrection, and the second coming were all fulfilled in AD 70 in the destruction of Jerusalem. If you hold to those things, then I believe that you're a preterist. You know, a lot of people claim preterism and maybe don't hold to those things. But the longer I study the Bible, the more convinced I am that preterism is true. I see preterism as an eschatology of hope, an eschatology of victory. But when I share preterism with others, the question that I'm inevitably asked is, if the Lord has already come back, where's my hope? And I think they ask this because of verses like Titus 2.13 that says, waiting for our blessed hope. What is the blessed hope they're waiting for? Well, it's the appearance of the glory of our great God and Savior, Yeshua the Christ. So the blessed hope is the return of Christ. Now, if you're brave enough to talk to others about the preterist view, which isn't always the smartest thing to do, okay? You get kicked out of churches, get kicked out of families, get kicked out of fellowships, you know. Uh, people don't like this view, but if you're brave enough to do it, you've most likely heard the question, where's my hope? You know, there seems to be a great confusion today about what the church's hope is. Is our hope to be snatched physically off the face of the earth? I think that most Christians would say yes. So when you tell them that the second coming is a past event, you have just torn their hope away, they feel. And being hopeless is not a good thing. Now, does preterism take away people's hope? No, not at all. If anything, it strengthens our hope. And this is very important because hope is important. To say that preterism destroys the hope of the church, I think, is a very serious charge. And I think it's serious because people need hope. Is there hope? Well, that's what parents wondered when the doctor said, there's been an accident, and your 20-year-old son is paralyzed from the neck down, and we don't think there's anything that can be done about it. Is there hope for the married couple who seem to wind up in the same dead end of unresolved conflict again and again, who worry that they might not make it? Or what about the man who's fallen victim to alcoholism or pornography or gambling or a number of addictive behaviors? The man is in so deep he fears he'll never find a way out. Is there hope for him? Where's the hope for the mom-to-be who goes to her obstetrician for a routine checkup and hears, I'm sorry, we can't find a heartbeat? Or for the single mom who works a full-time job by day and serves as both mother and father by night and wonders to herself, How long can I keep this up? 
or the person who battles depression and anxiety, or the man who stands by his wife's bedside as she lies dying? Where's the hope for a generation of young people who seem to be an easy mark for progressivism and liberalism? Drugs, sexually transmitted disease, pain of a broken family. Believers, to all of these we must say, yes, there is hope in Yeshua the Christ. As Christians, we can offer hope to the hopeless. One writer expressed it this way, hope is an essential ingredient of life. A man works in hope. He saves in hope. He dies in hope. Every great religion, every political movement has offered hope. Another wrote, a person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but only four seconds without hope. You know, hope is a power that keeps us going in the toughest times of life. It takes obstacles and transforms them into possibility. Hope gives us the strength and courage we need to make the most out of life. Now, I'm sure you understand the importance of hope. We need to have hope. But it can't be a misplaced hope. See, if you remember, I guess it was about 20 years ago now, 39 members of the cult known as Heaven's Gate took their own lives in the hope of linking up with a UFO that was supposedly traveling in the wake of the comet Hellbop. I think this is just a chilling example of misplaced hope. After their death, authorities discovered videotapes in which the leader of the cult described the Hope for Space Encounter. Members came before the camera two at a time, side by side, to say their last goodbyes. One woman said, maybe they're crazy for all I know, but I don't have any choice but to go for it because I've been on this planet for 31 years and there's nothing here for me. You know, as I read that statement, it struck me, there's a woman desperate, in desperate need of hope, who gave her life for a hope that was no hope at all. It was misplaced. Listen to the analysis of Woody Allen. He says, more than any other time in history, mankind faces a crossroads. One path leads to despair and utter hopelessness. The other to total extinction. Let us pray we have the wisdom to choose correctly. That's no choice. There's no choice between those two. It's ridiculous. It's a terrible choice. I'll choose neither of those roads. But Alan reflects the thinking of many today. Now, I read a a scientific experiment. And I like science. I love science. But science today is, they call it science, but it's really not science. It's pseudoscience. Science is an experiment that you can repeat and you can prove and you can do it again and you can show that it's true, all right? Not some theory of something. I don't care about theories. Theories are things people make up, all right? But I read an experiment that scientists conducted about a group of behavioral scientists. They they did this experiment on wharf rats, all right? They put these rats in a tank of water and observed them to see how long they would survive before they drowned, all right? So how long do you think a rat in a tank of water is going to keep swimming and keep fighting to keep alive before he gives up? What do you think? 14 minutes? 
The average time was 17 minutes. So these rats are in the water, and they're like, oh, we're drowning. Well, they fought for about 17 minutes, and then they drowned. Okay, well, then they repeated the experiment. But this time, just before the rats gave up, they could tell they're failing, they're about to quit. They rescued them from drowning. They dried them off. They put them back in their cages. They fed them, and they let them play for several days. And then they repeated the drowning experiment. This time, the average survival time of these rats increased from 17 minutes to 36 minutes? 36 minutes would be good. That's more than double. But that's not what it increased to. It increased to 36 hours. 17 minutes is not a long time. Okay, so they take me out of the tank. They drive me. They let me play. They put me back in. 36 hours. That's a huge increase. The scientist's explanation of this was the second time around, the rats had hope. Because somebody pulled them out before. And they put them back in their, in their environment. And they got to eat and live and play. And so they said, hey, maybe someone's coming again. Let's hang on. 36 hours. That's incredible, people. And I think that just gives us a little idea of the importance of hope. When people don't have hope, they just give up. We need hope. So let's talk about hope. What is it? What is hope? Well, let me give you a biblical definition because the word hope has come to have a different meaning today than that was originally used in the New Testament. All right? Today it indicates something of a contingency. All right? For example, I'll say, I hope it doesn't rain today. Or I hope this car makes it another year before it totally dies. All right? Indicating some kind of uneasiness or uncertainty about the future. That's not what the New Testament means by hope. That's not the usage of hope. In the New Testament, hope indicates an absolute certainty about the future. An attitude of eager expectance of continuance in God and in His ability to do what He has said. Confidence in God and His ability to do what He said. Alright, so it's a surety. It's not a, you know, I just, maybe this will work out. It's an attitude that says, I have the resources in Yeshua to meet the world head on. Now when Christians hear about preterism, they question, where's my hope? Because they've been taught to believe that our hope is tied with the second coming. And if you're taught that, of course that's what you're going to believe. And men like John Piper teach this. John Piper says, the blessed hope of all who believe is the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, that's true. Now, if Piper would have lived in the first century, that would have been true. (laughs) He'd be right. But he lives in the 21st century, so that's not correct. Uh, The late Jerry Falwell wrote this. Most born-again Christians believe in the premillennial, pre-tribulational coming of Christ for His church. Okay? I agree with that. That's most Christians do. Now, Falwell goes on to say this. Now, this is, this is strong language, so cover your kids' ears. This is the blessed hope of the church. The anticipation of the imminent return of Christ to catch away His bride is the one factor which distinguishes followers of Christ from all other inhabitants 
of this planet. <laughs> Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the belief in the second coming, that makes you a Christian basically because that, separ- that belief separates us from everybody else who doesn't follow Christ. So he just feels like this is, this is a fundamental of the faith to believe this. Well, the Bible definitely teaches that the coming of Christ was a blessed hope. We saw it in our verse in Titus 2.13. Waiting for our blessed hope. And the blessed hope is the appearing and the glory of our great God and Savior. Now here's the problem. The second coming of Christ was the hope of the first century church. But it's a hope that was fulfilled in the first century. See, we live in a different age than the original recipients of the New Testament letters. And most people don't get that. All through the New Testament, we see two ages in contrast. This age and the age to come. For example, Matthew 12, 32. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Now, the this age is the age that they lived in when they wrote this. All right? The word come here at the end of the verse is the Greek word mellow and means about to. So we could translate this the age about to come. So that's in the first century. It was about to come. About to come for whom? For that audience, that first century audience. Those in the first century. Ephesians 1.21, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the one to come. Here again, we see two ages. So the New Testament speaks of two ages, this age and the age to come. The understanding of these two ages and when they change is fundamental to interpreting the Scriptures. And if you miss this, be you layman, be you scholar, be whoever, you miss this, you're off track. You don't know what time it is. It's important to understanding what our hope is today, knowing what age you're living in. See, the New Testament writers lived in the age they called this age. To the New Testament writers, the age to come was future, but it was very near because the age they were in was about to end. 1 Corinthians 10, 11, Paul says, now these things happened to them as an example. He's talking about the old covenant saints. These things happened to them. He says, but they were written down for our instruction. Our instruction is Paul and the first century saints on whom the end of the ages has come. See, Paul says very plainly, the end of the ages was coming upon them, first century saints. This age was about to end. Now, the this age of the Bible was the Old Covenant age. It was the Jewish age. That age came to an end with the destruction of the temple in AD 70. So the New Testament writers lived in what the Bible calls this age. We live in what the Bible calls the age to come. In the first century, this age, the age of the Old Covenant, was fading away. It ended completely when the Jewish temple was destroyed in AD 70. The this age of the Bible is now ancient history. With that in mind, let's look at the word hope through the New Testament. We find several things that were the hope of the early church. See, if you talk to people about what is the hope of the church, <clears throat> excuse me, 
<coughs> they're going to tell you the second coming. And that's one of the things, but there's a lot of other things that were the hope of the church. So let's look at what the Bible says of what the hopes are. What are these hopes? In the New Testament, we find several things. First of all, the second coming. All right, we already talked about that. Titus said, waiting for our blessed hope. So the second coming was a hope of the New Testament church. 1 Peter 1.13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Yeshua the Christ. So the second coming was definitely a hope of the first century church. 1 John 3.2-3, Beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, that's the second coming, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. So we see that the second coming was a hope to those who lived in this age, the first century saints. But it wasn't the only thing that was a hope. The resurrection was also a hope for that first century church. Paul taught that the resurrection was the hope of Israel and of the New Testament saints. In Acts 23.6, Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I'm a Pharisee. The son of a Pharisee. So he's dividing the party here. You know, I know what you guys believe. Let me split this thing up. It is with respect to the hope and resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. Paul says, I believe in the resurrection. The Sadducees didn't. That was the hope of the New Testament church. Acts 24, 15. Having a hope in God, which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So his hope is that there's going to be a resurrection. 28, 20. For this reason, therefore, I have asked to see you and speak with you, since it's because of the hope of Israel that I'm wearing this chain. Well, what was the hope of Israel? He tells us in 26, 6-8, he says, Now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to obtain as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews. O king, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? So it's clear from verse 6 that Paul sees the resurrection of the dead as that which fulfills my hope in the promises made by God to our fathers. The resurrection was the hope of the first century church. So we got the second coming and the resurrection. Most people get that, I think. And they, they would say that's still future. But do you know the righteousness was a hope of the first century church? Look what Paul wrote to the Galatians 5.5. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And you say, well, weren't the New Testament, didn't they have righteousness? Well, there's some New Testament texts that talk about the righteousness as a present possession, and there's some that talk about it as a hope of the future because they lived in a time of already but not yet. And I hate to even use that term because most people think we're still in that. Now, that was the transition period, was the already but not yet. The church was growing, maturing. The already but not yet is over. All right, it ended in AD 70. But righteousness was something that they hoped for. What else they hoped for? They hoped for salvation. What? Salvation was a hope? Yeah, that's what the Bible teaches. 1 Thessalonians 5.8 But since we belong to the day, 
Let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. Here's Paul saying, we're hoping for salvation in the first century. You're saying, that's thought that was something they already had. Well, let's add another one. Eternal life was a hope. They were hoping in that first century for eternal life. Titus 1-2. In hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. So we're hoping for that. Titus 3-7. So that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So they were hoping for the second coming, the resurrection, righteousness, salvation, eternal life. Now, if we were to tell people today that we have eternal life, we have salvation right now, we have righteousness right now, would they ask us, where's my hope? I mean, where's my hope then if I'm saved right now? Well, that's dumb. No, I've never heard anybody ask that. Because they believe that they have those things right now. But eternal life, salvation, righteousness were all a hope of those who lived in the this age. Eternal life, salvation, righteousness became the full possession of the church at the second coming, which happened at the end of the Old Covenant. So if they have salvation and eternal life and righteousness, then they also have the resurrection and the second coming. At the end of the Old Covenant age, in AD 70, which was the last day of the Old Covenant, Several things happened. Alright? When the Old Covenant ended, Christ returned. That put an end to the Old Covenant. 2 Timothy 4.1 I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Yeshua, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom. Alright, so, who is to, here is mellow, which means He's about to. So, Christ Yeshua is about to judge the living and the dead when? At His appearing. He's about to judge, and if He judges His appearing, then His appearing is about to come about at this time. Right? Hebrews 10.37 says, For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay. So it was a very little while until that coming would come in the first century. So at the end of the Old Covenant age, the Lord returned. The resurrection happened. All right, we see that. John eleven twenty four. Martha said to him, I know that he will arise again in the resurrection when? On the last day. The last day of what? The last day of the old covenant age. The age to come, which was the new covenant age, has no last days, no end times. It is an everlasting covenant. So the resurrection would happen on the last day of the Old Covenant age. So we saw that Christ is going to return, the resurrection is going to happen, and the judgment is going to take place. Matthew 13, 40, Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. Just burning with fire is a judgment. It's going to happen at the end of the age. Since... This age of the Bible ended in AD 70 with the destruction of the temple and the coming of the Lord. We must be in the age to come. And if we're in the age to come, then Christ has already returned, the resurrection has already happened, and the judgment of the nations has already taken place. Now, if you don't think those things have happened, 
then righteousness is still a hope, salvation is still a hope, eternal life is still a hope. Notice what Yeshua said the believers would receive in the age to come. This is important. This comes in the age to come. Yeshua said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time. Right now you're going to receive it. Houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions. Now watch this. And in the age to come, eternal life. Here's what's funny. Go get a commentary. Look this up in the commentary and see what they have to say about it. Because this verse says, in the age to come, eternal life. Now, most people don't believe we're living in the age to come. They believe we're in the this age, so we don't have eternal life. So this causes them to stumble. I mean, there's, you'll get a laugh out of reading some commentaries of what they say here because they don't, some of their honest, you know, like we says, I don't know what to make of this at all. I can just tell you what these words mean. I can't, I can't explain this, you know. And he's being honest because he's like, I don't get it because he doesn't know what time it is. As we saw, eternal life was a hope of those who lived in this age. But it's a present possession of all believers in the age to come, which is the age we live in, the new covenant age. Now, since the second coming, the resurrection, the judgment, eternal life, salvation, righteousness have already come, why should they be our hope? You don't hope for what you have. You do realize that, right? You don't hope for what you have. This is what Paul says in Romans 8.24, For in this hope we were saved. Now, hope that is seen, is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees, right? But if we hope for what we do not see, we would patience wait for it. I remember as a teenager, my hope, one of my hopes, was a Harley Davidson. And I would go by the Harley dealer, and I would look at that bike, I would sit on that bike, I would dream about that bike. I mean, that was a hope. That, I had my hope in someday owning that Harley. Well, I purchased that Harley, and then, you know what? I didn't hope for it anymore. I just went out and drove it when I wanted to. I didn't hope for it, because I had it. And it was kind of disappointing. You know, it was more fun almost when I hoped for it, because I got it, and I'm like, oh, not as great as I thought it would be. But anyway, you don't hope for what you have. As preterists, we're not taking anybody's hope away What we're saying is your hope has been fulfilled. It's a present possession. What the early church hoped for, we have. And let me tell you something. Have is better than hope. I could never ride that bike while I hoped for it. (laughs) I can only ride it when I had it, okay? So what is our hope today? Do we have a hope today? If the second coming has happened, then what is our hope? Well, first of all, let me say, those who don't believe in Yeshua, those who don't trust in Yeshua, have no hope. All right, Ephesians 2.12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope because you were without God in the world. So they had no hope. But for those of us who have placed our trust in Christ Yeshua, 
Our hope is heaven. Now, remember what we said about hope. Biblical hope is not finger-crossing. It's not, boy, I sure hope I make it to heaven. It's a confident expectation of good things to come. We know it's coming. We're hoping for that. Sometimes we hope a lot more than others, right? 2 Corinthians 5.1 says this, For we know that if the earthly tent, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, this is a controversial text here, and whether you take the tent here to refer to the old covenant body or to the physical body, doesn't really matter for our purposes here. And I've gone back and forth and still go back and forth on both of these, okay? And I think maybe it's both, all right? The earthly tent could refer to the old covenant community. Or I think it could also refer to the physical body. It's used that way. Now, the idea that here, though, that I want you to see is our hope, our home, is heaven. Believers, someday we're going to physically die. And when that happens, we're not going to go out of existence. We're not going to go to the lake of fire. We go to heaven. This is our hope, to leave this physical world, to leave it with its trials, its hardships, and to dwell in heaven with our Lord. Our hope, meaning our absolute certainty about the future, is that when we leave this body at death, we'll be in the presence of the Lord. That's our hope. And that's incredible hope, people. I don't know how people without the Lord do it sometimes. Because, you know, when we're in the midst of crisis, when our world is falling apart around us, when everything looks bleak, I think, you know what? This is temporary. I'm going to be with the Lord. I'm going to be with the Lord in heaven, and I'm not going to have to put up with this stuff. Now, those who are familiar with the Tanakh will remember the story of the Queen of Sheba and her visit to Solomon. You remember that story? She'd heard about Solomon's greatness and his wisdom. She heard about all that you know went on with him and how great he was, and people had spoke you know, very strongly about Solomon's glory. But she didn't believe it. So we read in 1 Kings chapter 10 that she determined to go see for herself, you know. And when she came, she listened to the wisdom of Solomon. He told her all was in her heart. She asked him about different things. She just saw the glory that he had as he apparel, the, the things attending to the kingdom. And, and just, she was kind of blown away by it. And she says this. She said to the king, It was a true report which I heard in my own land about your words and your wisdom. Nevertheless, I didn't believe the reports. I heard all this stuff about I just couldn't believe it because it just was too incredible to believe. Until I came and my eyes seen it, and behold, the half was not told me. Wow. You know, I didn't believe the incredible stories I heard, but seeing it is way more, okay? I think... The half has not been told me will be the experience of the us who end up in heaven. You know, even what no matter what we imagine, you know, you can only imagine, I think you can't even imagine what it's going to be like. Well, so okay, we're going to heaven. Where is it? Where do we go? Well, in answer to that, the Bible tells us that heaven is spiritual. That's important. Heaven is real. It's a different realm than that of the earth. You know, we read in the Bible of the heavenly realm and of the earthly realm. The earthly realm is the realm of the physical, the material, things visible to our eyes. The realm that we can see, touch, smell, hear, and taste. 
Well, heaven, on the other hand, is spiritual. It's heavenly. We can't see with our eyes. We can't hear. We can't, unless God opens our eyes to glimpse into that realm. We can't feel it with our hands. We can't taste it or smell it. Heaven's not made of anything of this earth. Paul told the Greek philosophers, he says, the God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in a temple made with hands. That God doesn't live in these buildings you build for Him. And He's standing before the Greek philosophers on Mars Hill. And the Greeks made houses of stone for their gods. And they would actually take gifts to their gods. They'd take them food. See, they had a whole different view of gods. They viewed they were there to serve these gods, to take care of them. It's kind of a weird view of God, isn't it, that you take care of Him? But they would take food to their gods. They'd leave the foods at these temples. They would also take them things like swords and canoes and equipment they might need in the afterlife, so to speak. So they conceived of the realm, they conceived of the realm of the gods in terms of earthly life. They still got to eat. They still need these weapons. And Paul says, that's not the case. That's foolishness, he says. Heaven is spiritual. Heaven is a place created by the eternal and the loving God. It is a place where the angels live. It is a place, as we read in Hebrews, where the spirits of just men made perfect now dwell. It's a sanctuary. It's glorious. See, the difference between the heavenly and the earthly, the Bible tells us, is in terms of glory. Heaven is exalted. Heaven is high and lifted up. And when I say lifted up, I mean not in the physical sense. It's not like it's a higher altitude or something. Okay? People always say, well, heaven's up. It's a different realm. It's high. It's lifted up. It's majestic. It's lifted up in the holiness of God. We see this in Psalm 113. He says, Who is like Yahweh our God who is enthroned on high? It's lifted up. It's exalted. We read in Isaiah, For thus says the high and exalted one, who lives forever, whose name is holy. I dwell in a high and a holy place, and also with a contrite and lowly in spirit, in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the contrite. We see the same thing in Isaiah 63. Look down from heaven and see for your holy and glorious habitation. Where Ah, wow, that wasn't good. Where are your zeal and your mighty deeds the stirring of your heart and your compassion restrained toward me. See, heaven is the place of God's holiness. It's the place of God's glory. Heaven is pure. It's glorious. God has to give you special eyes to see it if you're going to see it, if you're going to understand it. So, can we describe it? What is heaven? It's a different realm, but what is it? Well, everywhere the Bible answers this question, this is simple, but you got to get this. Where's heaven? What's heaven? Heaven is the dwelling place of God. It's where God is. Okay? It's where God is. It's the place where we're going to have perfect fellowship with the living and true God. The truth is like a golden thread that runs throughout all of Scripture. Repeatedly we are told that heaven is exactly this. It is God's dwelling. It's where God's presence is fully revealed. And God's presence is fully enjoyed as least as much as any creature can ever enjoy the blessed fellowship with the living God. The Bible uses these terms to describe heaven. It's a holy habitation. It's thy, thy dwelling place. 
It's His holy dwelling, the height of His sanctuary. It speaks of God who dwells in the heavens. It's the dwelling place of God, where the intimate life of God and the life with God can be enjoyed. Now, the word dwell is a rich word. It means much more than simply to live there. When you say this is where you dwell, you're not just saying that's the place where you are, but the word dwell conveys the idea of fellowship. It's where we truly reveal who you are. You open up, you show your love, you share your intimate parts of your life. So heaven is God's dwelling place, the place where the present, His presence and His fellowship are experienced. The love and grace of God are made known to us there. This is what makes heaven, heaven. This is the glory of heaven. Notice what Paul says about it in Corinthians. He says, Boasting is necessary, though it is not profitable. But I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know, or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I don't know if I was bodily or not. See, you can go there without a body, obviously. Because in a body or out of the body. I don't, I don't know, he says. Not sure. Such a man was caught up to the third heaven, and I know how such a man, whether in the body or apart from the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words which a man is not permitted to speak. See, basically, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot about heaven. And I guess maybe because right now it's beyond our ability to comprehend. But also because God wants us to understand that heaven, as to its very heart, is God's dwelling. There's one central thing that makes heaven so special. God's there. That's what it's about. It's being in His presence. We see God. We dwell with God. That believer is our hope. Heaven. According to 1 Thessalonians, when we die, we'll be taken to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. That is a glorious hope. Look at 1 Thessalonians 4.17. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, so shall we always be with the Lord. Famous rapture verse. The words caught up here, the Greek word harpazo, it means to snatch away. This is where the word rapture comes from, but being caught up means something different than a levitation off the physical planet from the earth into the atmosphere or sky. Harpazo refers to the Christian being caught up without the body. It's not a physical body that's raptured. It's the Christian himself who leaves the body behind and goes into the spiritual realm where God dwells. The dead believers were resurrected when Christ returned. All other Christians will be caught up at their physical death. So those, the dead were moved out of Sheol into the presence of God at the resurrection. People who live since then, when we die, that's when it happens. We go into the presence of the Lord. So what greater hope could we have than to be taken to heaven to dwell with Christ for all eternity? This is the present day hope of the church. And preterism does not deny that. It strongly affirms that. So when someone asks you, where's my hope? 
You ask them, what is your hope of the second coming? You've got to share with them, well, there's a lot of other things that the first century church hoped for. Are you still hoping for salvation? Are you still hoping for eternal life? Are you still hoping for righteousness? And they'll say, no. Well, these are all connected, people. And listen, we're not going to escape physical death. Okay, Everybody dies. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that comes judgment. Hebrews 9.27 But when we do die physically, we move into the heavenly realm where we live forever with the Lord. And to me, that's a blessed hope. And that's encouraging. And there's many times, and again, you know, it depends on your situation. When you're really going through it here, it's like, I'm looking for that hope. When things are great and grand and glorious here, we're like, not yet, Lord. You know, I don't want to die yet and go into that realm. I'll wait a while, you know, because we're enjoying life. But people... It's coming, all right? If you've trusted in the Lord, Yeshua the Christ, when you die, your hope is to dwell in His presence forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the great assurances we find in Scripture. Thank You for Your love for us, Lord. Thank You that we have this present hope. We're not wishing for it. We have a certainty, knowing because of Your Word, because of the promises You have made us, if we trust You, if we trust Yeshua the Christ, we are given eternal life. Life in Your presence. Thank You, Father, for Your grace to us. Amen. Okay. <clears throat> Questions? <laughs> Comments? Gary? Um. Something you just said there at the end about heaven is where God is. Um, I don't want to try and bend this too much, but if we, in the Spirit, surrender ourselves and, and truly fellowship with God, then are, we are in heaven. I'm making too much of that. Can have it be me in my backyard? Well, Gary's question is, you know, when we're fellowship with the Lord, and I think that's definitely, you know, you can walk with the Lord in such fellowship that it's grand and glorious and you're just in His presence. But heaven is a different realm, okay? It, it is a, it's not spatial. It's a different realm that we go to, and when we go there, you know, the Bible says we'll be like the angels, what does that mean? I don't know. They're incorporeal, are they? Do they? They show bodies, they have bodies at times, and they don't have bodies. So there's a lot about heaven we don't know. Okay, but yes, I understand what you're saying. I think we can live in such a way here and now that we're walking in such fellowship with the Lord that environment we're in doesn't matter. That, I think Paul was there. Paul didn't care what happened to him, you know? You know, he said, none of these things move me. I don't, they're going to beat you. They're going to whip you. They're gonna, I don't care about any of that. You know, he didn't care. He just wanted to fellowship with the Lord. You beat him, and you put him in the inner dungeon, in stocks, and he sings. Praises to his God. Fellowship. It, so the life, the experiences that he went through didn't affect him because he was walking in intimate fellowship. And I believe we can do that. To me, that's what we've been talking about in John, abiding in Christ. You know, and, and, but the thing is, people, 
the pull of the world and the pull of life is so strong that it's like we can't break from that. We're so caught up that at times we're like, oh yeah, I haven't prayed for a while. I forgot about prayer. I forgot about the Lord. You know, we just go on as if He's not even here and then it, something happens and reminds us, oh yeah, it's church. we got to go back and worship God or something. You know, and we just, it should be a continual experience for us. But that takes a lot of discipline because, like I said, the world has a pull. We're pulled by entertainment, by all kinds of things, and it's hard to just walk in that fellowship. But I think it, it's there and it's available for those who apply themselves. Okay, I got, I got a text from Bob Krushank Jr. Remember, senior doesn't text, okay? So we know it's from junior, all right? And he's being sarcastic, okay? He says, David, what you didn't realize when you bought that motorcycle is that you had the Harley already, but not yet. <laughs> and, you know, he is being sarcastic because, see, that's what he's put, making a play on, and Heiser's really big on the already, but not yet. It's already, you got it, but you don't have it. Well, which is it? You know, they, they had it, but they didn't have it 2,000 years ago, and we still already have it, but don't have it. No, that, you have to understand the already but not yet is limited to a 40-year period. It didn't go on forever. So I had it, but I didn't have it. He said, you could have hope, kept hoping for it after all. <laughs> uh, yeah, I could have, but it would have been kind of stupid laying in my bed saying, man, I hope I get that Harley someday. It's right outside. I just got to go out of the house and jump on it, you know? Yeah, that's, I get you. I get it, Bob. I get it. Anybody else? Gary? Um, we go back a long ways. I remember, do you remember a time when you hoped for your own church? Respect the trip that it took to get it? <laughs> I don't know that I ever, was that something I ever hoped for? Uh, I don't know. Um, yeah, that's, that's part of it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, I don't know, many, maybe some of you don't know this, but this church was actually started on my birthday. Okay, we resigned on the 20th of April, and the church was started on April 27th, which was my birthday, 21 years ago now. And I remember that, you know, I was not a happy camper that first day because there was so much controversy and so much, you know, because we're, you know, you're preterists and they're, they're calling us names and all this stuff, and so it was born out of, great controversy, and one of my friends comes up to me and he says, smile, he says, God gave you a church for your birthday. <laughs> it wasn't something I was looking for, that's for sure, but, but I tell you what, from, from that day, 21 years later, um, you know, preterism started in great controversy, but I, I've said this many times, I have found fellowship in this preterist community like I have never experienced in my Christian life. You know, people who love the Lord, and I, I just met so many people who are students, you know, real students of the Bible. In other words, I'm just trying to figure out what the Bible says. Not people who are preaching their own agenda or, you know, harping on their own thing, but people who just want to know what the Bible teaches so they can love the Lord in a better way. And so it's been, it's been a blessed ride, I'll tell you that. Yeah, it started out pretty rough. Remember that beginning, honey? <laughs> Go on. 
if God has already established His temple, if the thing that we see in Revelation has already come down to earth, that's a first-class condition. If right, since, since, if it has, <laughs> then what's the difference between that and? That's a good question. You know, um, because you know the Bible indicates that in this life, this age, we are in fellowship with God. We are in communion with God. We see God because, you know, that's the promise. You know, we live in that realm. We live in that age. You know, face to face, the Bible talks about. But at death, something happens. We leave this realm. We go to another realm, which, like I said, I can't tell you a lot about it because the Bible doesn't tell you a lot about it. When I was in college, one of my professors wrote a book called The Truth About Heaven. Okay? I went back and read that book after I became a preterist and found there was no truth in it. Okay? Because everything he replied to heaven was the new covenant. You know? So I'm like, he was very... And that's because, again, the Bible doesn't tell us a lot. Because I just think we can't wrap our head around it. I really just don't believe we can. You know, it's another realm. Another form of existence. Well, I believe we'll exist in a body, a, not this kind of body, a different body, a body fit for that realm. But so I, it's a good question, and I wish I could answer it. But you know, uh, and, and there's some predators who believe nothing changes, you know. But I'm like, at death, something has to change, okay? Something has to change, John. If your body dies, your brain also dies. What then is left? Okay, your body dies, your brain dies. I think it's the spirit of man. You know, there's the Jews didn't break man down, you know, body, soul, and spirit. They just, it's you, okay? And the, the part of you somehow can exist without the body because Paul talked about whether it's in the body or out of the body. I don't know, but I was, if he was out of the body, he still had an existence. He still had a, you know, a consciousness, so to speak. So, I can tell you this. If you trust Christ, Heaven is your final destination. What's there when you get there? I don't have a clue. <laughs> Other than God. Huh? <laughs> I, I agree with John there. I don't think you'll be disappointed. Okay? Not at all. Um, anybody else? What are the Hebrew words for this age and the age? Uh, alam haba and alam hazah. Yeah, this age and the age to come. And you got to look at you know the way they viewed it, um, but because they viewed the coming age as an age of you know Messiah, and uh, again this is I <clears throat> it's confusing to me because when I look at the scriptures I think it's so clear you got this age and you got the coming age and the, this age is about to end so the coming age is real soon but most people Christians today scholars today and if they're scholars then you know they know something. <clears throat> and they see we're still in the already not yet. We're still into this age. And I'm like, wow, when does it end? Jeff? Do you think maybe they look at heaven, some of them look at like the age to come as being heaven? Like when we die, then we get eternal life because the age to come is a different life after death. Yes, I think many view the age to come as the eternal state, heaven. What they call the eternal state or heaven. Yeah, they that's what you get in the age to come. You know? But... I don't think that, you know, here's the problem is the Bible says this age was about to come 2,000 years ago.
So I, I you know. Yeah, and, and, and everybody, like I said, they'll believe you. Do you have salvation today? Oh, yeah. Do you have eternal life? Yeah. And the age to come could not start until the Jewish temple went away. That's right. Especially that maybe be the time in their minds that that's the time when heaven was open. We didn't have eternal life. We didn't have uh, res- you know, the ability to go anywhere until the age to come became open or available. So that they would say, now we're still in this age until we die. And then we're in, it just seems weird because it doesn't seem like age. It seems more like place. Right. Right. There's definitely a lot of confusion over it. But like I said, I think, you know, it's, it's clear. <clears throat> I think he talks about, you know, the temple was being built in Ephesians 2. You know, we're the temple. God's building this temple for a holy habitation so he can dwell in it. You know, the old age is fading. It's about to go. It's about to be done. And so we live in the glorious age of the new covenant where we don't have to take animal sacrifices to a building, you know, and go there in fear and trepidation that God would kill us, you know, because we did something wrong. You know, we share the righteousness of Christ. That's an incredible thought. We're going to go to heaven because we are as righteous as Christ. Not something we're working on, something we have. 